0: At 8 o'clock in the morning on the first Sunday in November, the first competitors in the New York City Marathon set off up the Verrazano Narrows Bridge in Staten Island, beginning their 26.2 mile trek through the city's five boroughs. By 11.15, just a little over three hours later, all of the winners in the various divisions will have crossed the finish line. But nine hours after that, long after the sweep buses have come through to pick up anyone who wants to quit and needs a ride to the finish line, hours after the streets have been reopened to traffic, the very last finishers who have been by that time sharing the sidewalks with ordinary pedestrians will finally cross the line and every one of them will receive a medal. Everyone who finishes the marathon receives a medal. Hardly anyone can tell you the names of the winners but everyone who walks around the city that night wearing their medal is greeted with congratulations and words of acclaim by total strangers. For those finishers, in a way, the city, which usually keeps to itself, becomes like a small southern town in which every resident is eager to greet you and wish you well, and they do it Not because you're fast, and not because you set a personal best, and not because you placed in your age group, but simply because you finished the race. That's good enough. Every time our family drives through the Bobby Hopper Tunnel on I-49, our children hold their breath. (laughs) To be honest, I usually hold my breath too. I grew up across the bay from Mobile, Alabama, and whenever our family drove through one of the two tunnels that goes under the shipping channel into the city, we always held our breath. When I was little, I struggled to make it to the end until my father taught me that you can hold your breath a lot longer if you breathe out a little bit along the way turns out that the alarm signal your brain sends to your lungs has less to do with a lack of oxygen and more to do with the buildup of carbon dioxide in your body that your body is desperate to get rid of. So if you can teach your brain not to panic, you can train your body to go without taking a breath for 5, 8, even 10 minutes. But what happens when you can't tell how long the tunnel will be? What happens if traffic comes to a standstill? What happens if we get to the finish line, ready to collapse, only to discover that we have to keep running? How are we supposed to make it to the end when we don't know where the end is? Jesus says to his disciples, they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Those are terrifying words of warning, but if we listen closely, we can also hear within them words of great comfort and encouragement. Jesus speaks these words to the 12 disciples, those whom he sends out to carry the good news of God's grace to the end of the world, but he's also talking to us, to Christians in every generation. He wants us to know that as people who belong to God through Jesus Christ, our lives are not measured by what we do in the face of struggle, but by our willingness to remain rooted in Christ no matter how long that struggle lasts. Notice what Jesus doesn't say to the disciples. He doesn't tell them to take the high road, to make a great public display of their unwavering faithfulness, even if it costs them their lives. Instead, he tells them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There are no other examples in the Bible of anyone being told to act like a snake. There are no parables. There are no prophetic utterances that say anything positive about serpents. Not one. Snakes are, from the very beginning, the embodiment of guile and deception. Yet Jesus tells his disciples, tells us, that when a situation calls for it, we are supposed to be as slippery as snakes. Although there aren't any examples found in the Bible, it turns out that Jesus wasn't the first rabbi to use this analogy to instruct the faithful. Ancient manuscripts show us that other religious leaders of that time told their congregations to act like cunning serpents in the face of Gentile persecution, but to always behave with the single-mindedness of doves when they were among their own people. Jesus was passing along this piece of practical advice, but expanding it to encourage his followers to recognize that sometimes artful dodging is necessary even when we're in the midst of our own people. Jesus wasn't telling his disciples to seek out martyrdom. He was teaching them to avoid it, even if it means putting on a spiritual disguise from time to time. Notice also that Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to practice their lines so that they will be ready to give an impressive speech when they are inevitably arrested and hauled before magistrates and rulers. Instead, he tells them to relax and to trust that God will give them the words to say when it really matters. That's good news because sometimes I don't know what to say in an important encounter. Frequently, I am at a loss when heartache and hardship come. I need to hear Jesus tell me that it will be okay no matter what I do or do not say. Isn't it encouraging to know that God isn't judging you on the words that come out of your mouth when the time comes? Because it isn't your job to say anything at all. That's God's job. God is the one who speaks through us in that moment. So the faithfulness that Jesus invites us into isn't a radical self destructive showiness. Nor is it a martyrdom debate contest, but a strange sort of simply and persistently belonging and trusting in God. Jesus doesn't tell us that our persecution, suffering, and struggles are a part of God's plan. Yet he makes it clear that somehow God will still use them for God's mysterious Purposes. Even if you try to escape, there is no way to avoid hardship in this life, yet, God refuses to allow our suffering to be empty. You probably won't have the right words to say at the critical moment. But you need not worry because it is our belonging to God that God uses as a witness to others. God will speak through our circumstances in ways more powerful than any elocution. Jesus even tells us that we are powerless to win over our own families, those closest to us whom Jesus acknowledges sometimes turn against us. But God does not abandon us because of what we cannot do, because of our limitations. Isn't that the good news we need to hear to keep going on this journey with an end that is uncertain? Then we can hear as good news the promise that it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. We do not belong to God because we say the right words or do the right thing when the moment of truth comes. We are not loved by God because we have lived a good life or because we have brought lots of other people into the faith. We do not share the inheritance of the saints because we have stood up in the face of persecution or because we have weathered the trials of this life without breaking down. We are God's beloved children because we belong to Jesus. He is the one who has reconciled us to God. Because of him, we are received by God, the God who gives each one of us a heavenly crown, whether we finish the race first or dead last. All we have to do, our job, is to finish the race. The one who endures to the end will be saved. That is good news indeed. Thanks be to God. Amen.